0: Hey, pull up a chair. It's Hacks on Tap with David Axelrod and Mike Murphy.
1: Murphy, it's Mueller time. What better way to start Hacks on Tap than Mueller time? This is the moment everybody's been waiting for. The Sphinx of the Potomac is going to appear on Capitol Hill tomorrow. And what are your expectations for that? Forget about the law. We neither Neither of us barely, you know, I barely got through, I can't speak for you, undergraduate work, so I'm not a lawyer. <laughs> so forget about the legal uh, aspects of
0: this, but what about the
1: politics?
0: Yeah, luckily for us, punditry requires no license, so we can go ahead and operate and hope for the best. I Nor can I am, we be
1: sued for bad predictions, which th- is,
0: that is... That is the mother's milk of our business. Hmm. I, I am tragically sadly blase about the Mueller appearance, because I think both tribes will just see in it what they want to see. The Trump people will keep up their lie about no collusion when that's not really what the report said um, and reinforce that. And the Democrats are going to badger somebody who doesn't want to be badgered. So if Mueller does sort of the talking points he's already done, which is we didn't find enough, but wink, wink, we found some stuff, Um, I don't think it'll move the ball at all. Now, maybe the Dems will get what they really want, which is that big Aaron Sorkin third act movement where Mueller shows up in his old Marine uniform and (laughs) calls for immediate impeachment and everything. But I think out there in real America, they've already figured out what they think. I I wish more people would read the report and get worked up about it. But I'm not sure this will be more than a lot of noise in Washington in the end, unfortunately.
1: Yeah, I agree with you. I do think the Republicans are also going to push the idea that somehow the whole thing was spawned from some uh, original sin, uh, you know, deep within the recesses of the FBI to uh, uh, to do Trump in, although you would think if that were the case, they would have deployed it while he was running for president and not right, after. Right, exactly. Uh, but, uh, you know, the, the the brilliance of the Republican strategy has been to turn it all into a partisan food fight. Uh, and you could, see the, you could see the impact of that in the recent polling. The, the appetite for impeachment has actually diminished. Only 21% of Americans think that uh, the House should begin impeachment proceedings. That was down from 27 a month or two ago. Uh, So that gives you a sense. uh, When you say you are blasé about it, I I think you're the average American.
0: Well, that is a troubling idea. (laughs) Yeah, I know. (laughs) I I
1: want to apologize to all the other (laughs) other Americans for making that
0: point. That's an insult to every hardworking American, but you're right. I think this is so baked in, you know, those numbers you were talking about, which were the classy, you know, eighty-five, fifteen among ours and fifteen, eighty-five among Dems, their mirror image, they look just like Trump approval ratings. Trump's persona is so big, almost all issues now stick, are becoming aligned to whether you're for or against. Now, I think net-net that's good for the Dems because more people don't like them than like them, but it, it's kind of the death of argument here, the death of reasoning. People just are in their tribe, dug in. Yeah, and you can see
1: that uh, CBS did a poll over the weekend uh, on this whole Contra Temps about his racist tweets and his attacks on the four congresswomen. And there too, everybody ran to their corners. Uh, 80% of Democrats thought they were racist. Uh, 80% of Republicans thought they were appropriate. And independents were wedged in the middle there. And so the majority of the country uh, believed that. Uh, But when you get to the tribes, they're very much polarized. And that's what's happened to our politics. It's also what's going to happen, I think, with, uh, with these hearings with Mueller. But we shall see.
0: Well, look, after the Mueller hearings, a lot of people on both sides are going to want to write angry letters to Congress. And I don't know about you, but for me, going to the post office is a bit of a hassle. I like the post office, but I don't like the time, the traffic, all the work that it takes to go. It just takes too much time. That's why I like Stamps.com, one of the most popular time-saving tools for small businesses. Stamps.com eliminates trips to the post office and saves you money. With discounts, get this, you can't even get them at the post office, David.
1: Stamps.com brings all the services of the U.S. Post Office right to your computer. Whether you're a small office sending invoices, an online seller shipping out products, or even a warehouse sending thousands of packages a day, Stamps.com can handle it all with ease, right from where you are. And with Stamps.com, you get five cents off every first-class stamp and up to 40% off priority mail. Uh, Not to mention it's a fraction of the cost of those expensive postage meters. So Mike, stamps.com is a no-brainer. It saves you time. It saves you money.
0: So listeners, look, we know people. This comes with working in national politics. So if you go to stamps.com and enter hacks on tap, you get a special offer that includes both a four-week trial and free postage and a digital scale without any long-term commitment. Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in hacks on tap. That's stamps.com. Enter Hacks on Tap. So I hear there's a big debate coming. Have you heard these rumors?
1: Yes, there is a a debate coming. And uh, cue the sound.
2: Happy Hunger Games. And may the odds be ever in your favor.
1: (laughs) This is going to be the Hunger Games for the simple reason that two-thirds of the people on the stage may not be there uh, come September. They need a huge moment uh, to break through. And then the people in the top tier uh, need to uh, score and try and get some separation uh, between themselves. So, man, I anticipate, you know, what the lesson of the last debate was if you hit somebody, you get the story, you you profit. Kamala Harris being the prime example of that, her attack on Joe Biden. I think that people are going to derive lessons from that, saying that uh, just giving their practice... Uh, Uh, answers on policy is not going to get them on the stage in in September.
0: Yeah, I think you're totally right. I mean, in the first debate, they all got their nerves out and they stumbled through their four-point plans and everything, and then they saw Kamala murder Biden. So, you know, they learn and they repeat and they imitate. And as you said, the Hunger Games, imagine this. You've got on each night 10 people who have been plotting and scheming about becoming something big, often president, since about middle school. And now they're all packed together in front of live television knowing that if something big doesn't happen to help them, they're not going to make it. So I agree. It's going to be... It's going to be quite a brawl. So Andrew Yang is out there selling these map hats. I like it. I bought one. But, of course, that put me on his mailing list for emails, which is a mixed blessing. However, kudos to them because they sent out a fundraising appeal with a fantastic map of each debate night by candidate face. So I'm working off that today. And in the middle, you have Bernie and um, Elizabeth and then flank. This is on
1: on the first night, all done by the luck of the draw. On CNN Thursday night, the whole world could see. Uh, (laughs) Complete with confetti cannons.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, Uh, so there,
1: so. The, yeah, two the two of them are center stage on, on the and first night. And then on night.
0: each wing, you got got um, the youngins. You've got Pete on one side and Beto, another guy talking Hunger Games, who's desperate to find a pulse in this campaign or he's not going to make it to Thanksgiving. Um, it, so you got all the generational story there and you got the ideological story all packed in center stage. It's going to be something.
1: Yeah, well, I think there are two... Plots here, subplots. One is uh, Elizabeth and Bernie. You know, uh, the, people say, oh, they're great friends. They say they're great friends. They're not great friends. Uh, Elizabeth, uh, Bernie was deeply offended that she didn't endorse him in 2016. Uh, she tried to uh, uh, drive him out of the race by getting in earlier than everybody else. They apparently met, couldn't come to a meeting of the minds on that. And she has slowly eroded his base uh, on the left and now is in, uh, in many polls a stronger position than Bernie. She's on the upswing, he's on the downswing. So one of the questions is, how do they deal with each other? Do they try and create some separation with each other? Uh, Elizabeth has made... Uh, much of her policy, which is more refined uh, than Bernie's. Um, she is she is certainly a candidate of the left, but she's uh, she's emphasized that she is a capitalist who wants to reform the capitalism, the the capitalist system. Bernie much more is identified with uh, democratic socialism, uh, which is different than socialism, but no- nonetheless, nobody really picks up on the democratic. Yeah, uh, like French vanilla ice it. cream. <laughs>
0: the modifier is true, <laughs> so, but not always that impactful. Yeah, why no, do we always have to go more. to
1: the food references? Yeah.
0: Anyway, <laughs> uh,
1: but uh, so there, there's that intrigue. But they're also they are big fat targets for a, for a group of candidates. No candidates of color on this platform. Many candidates who are trying to occupy the center. Of the uh, of the debate, uh, so you know you've got Hickenlooper and you've got Bullock and you've got uh, Amy Klobuchar and you've got I think Buttigieg uh, Pete Buttigieg may try and take some of that uh, turf and you know almost everyone on that platform other than those two and Marianne Williamson who will be on the on the flank there uh, are what you would consider moderate uh, Democrats and. The best way for them to certify themselves is to uh, play bumper cars with one or both of those two. Uh, And I expect, you know, one of the things that happened in the last debate, in the aftermath, there was a reaction to it. You and I have talked about it, that maybe Democrats have driven too far left and that uh, they will – and that they will emerge from this with a candidate who is unable to defeat Donald Trump because it abets his strategy, you know, socialism, open borders and so on. I think there's a sensitivity to that argument. I think you're going to see people be much more overt about it in this debate and they're going to point fingers at, uh, at, at, at Bernie and Elizabeth Warren, uh, you know, to make their point and to try and get on
0: the tube. Yeah, I agree. It's the big obvious move. It's interesting it's taken somebody this long to figure it out because the chunk of vote in the primary that is not on board losing with the far left ideas is bigger than the ballot position of anybody on the stage. There's 35, maybe 40 percent of the primary voter looking voters looking for a champion and somebody would be crazy not to forcefully take that. So you might see a couple trying to do it. I I think in some ways, the star of the debate could be potentially Steve Bullock, the governor of Montana, who nobody's seen yet. So he's new. He's a Western Democrat, kind of like Michael Bennett, who we talked to later on the show. Um, This is a guy who's won a, a, a deep red state. And he, if he has a bit of a Western twangy persona up there, could be very different, very interesting and get a lot of attention. And speaking of the whole friendship, quote-unquote, dynamic between Bernie and Elizabeth Warren, you know, I remember Jeb Bush's close friend, a person he mentored and brought through politics, Marco Rubio. Well, it didn't take long for that friendship to go up and smoke. Uh, He ran, and we put a can opener on him. I finally remember doing that. So in politics, national politics, uh, friendships don't last long, particularly when there's a big prize at stake.
1: So we got a— We got. Oh, let's talk about the second night before we uh, before we get to yeah. the next item. The second night is interesting because you've got Joe Biden flanked by Kamala Harris, who 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 uh, clocked him in the last debate, and Cory Booker, who has been vociferous about uh, uh, Biden's uh, fond references to. The uh, segregationists that he worked with on other issues in the past, and I want to se- uh, I want to stress that part. But he has been uh, a, a thorn in Biden's side, and then the rest of the panel, by and large, other than Michael Bennett, uh, are what you would call candidates of of the left: uh, De Blasio, uh, Julian Castro, who obviously scored some points against Beto O'Rourke in the last debate on this issue of decriminalizing the border. And I think Biden is going to be a big target here in this debate. And I thought he, of all people, uh, got the worst draw uh, among the top tier of candidates.
0: Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, in some ways, Biden got the most painful possible debate. He's going to have a righteous sandwich between Kamala on one side and Corey on the other, working him over. But he's also got what he needs, which is an opportunity. You know, Biden's the one who has to show in the debate stage he can, you know, take it and give it out, that he's got a sharp game, that he's not too old, that he hasn't lost his fastball. And this is it, because now the expectations were for Kamala to float the room again, another home run. That's what she does, right? Well, Biden, if he overperforms a bit and can handle this tough environment, huge if, huge if, um, could get the restart he needs. If not, another bad debate, and uh, uh, things are going to be pretty glum at Biden Incorporated. So it's a tough situation, you, you know, uh, but it's an opportunity.
1: A couple of other candidates who will be on that platform are, you know, zero to one percenters, uh, two New Yorkers, Bill de Blasio and Kirsten Gillibrand. I expect both of them could go after biden uh, gillibrand on the uh, uh on the uh, issue of his handling of the anita hill hearings that would be right in her wheelhouse uh yeah. you know r- she's running uh, a lot on her record uh on uh, uh of advocacy on the issue of sexual assault and de blasio you know he was kind of a a, a wild man on the platform last time in terms of trying to get in the discussion and inter- interjecting himself Um, and he could, you know, he wants that mantle that Bernie and Elizabeth have that mantle of the left. And, uh, you know, he may see it as in his interest to dress, uh, Biden down as the icon of the sort of centrist Democrat in this race. So, you know, I, I I think debate prep should be pretty lively over there at, at Biden headquarters, because as you say, (laughs) he can't afford another bad debate. That last debate was costly in terms of raising questions about age and and uh, whether he's still got game. And um, uh, he needs to prove it here, and it's gonna be challenging. So speaking Those of New challenging- uh, are,
0: uh, Just quickly, the New Yorkers are not shy either. Gillibrand and de Blasio are sluggers. They're used to that New York media market. Neither of them are going to win the most likable award in the Iowa caucus, but they got nowhere to go but up. I'm curious if she'll get a question off the New Yorker piece on the, uh, the crucifixion of Al Franken, because I think a lot of Democrats, yeah. at least elites, are talking about that. And she deserves a fastball question Gillibrand does on that. So that'll be interesting. Those two. She Maybe does. They're gonna a the, the, it's
1: a great point. That piece, Jane Mayer wrote a great piece. Jane Mayer, maybe one of the great, not maybe, one of the great investigative reporters on the planet did a really thorough takeout on this issue of how Franken was forced from the Senate, and Gillibrand plays a starring role in that, which is a sore point with a lot of uh, Democrats, particularly Democrats on the left, who uh, were fond of Franken and felt like he didn't get a a great deal. In, In the initial reaction, she was defiant. Said she'd do it all over again, but yeah, you're right. She may get a question, and it. it'd be smart. Uh, it'd be smart to ask her. And if she doesn't get it, someone else may. Someone else may raise it. Although uh, that was a little like Murder on the Orient Express. Uh, there were a lot of Democrats who had their hand on the bloody knife. Many of whom have expressed regret. She's not been one of them. So, speaking of tough situations, uh, I want to talk about Michael Bennett. And as a lead-in. Uh, I want to uh, read a question. I want to do a little uh, peek ahead uh, to our virtual mailbag and and read a question uh, from a a guy named Dan who described himself as a desperate patriot. I think, or is that the next guy? No. Okay, he just described himself as Dan, which is good enough for me. He said, I'm one of those center-left Democrats who thinks that taking away private health insurance and decriminalizing illegal border crossing is a trap that too many of our potential nominees have already walked into. I worry about Biden's sharpness and freshness. The candidate who impressed me most in the first set of debates was Michael Bennett, who seem to balance all the things I'm looking for in a nominee? Can Bennett emerge as a potential serious candidate for the nomination, or is he already doomed to be one a one percenter at this early date? So, rather than us answering it, let's ask Michael Bennett,
2: Senator Michael Bennett. Good to see you. It's great to see you too. Thanks for letting me come by. This That's is uh, we, we
1: speak on a uh, 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 on a weekend when you got some. Good news and bad news, you got the coveted endorsement of George Will.
2: Uh,
1: I don't know what that means in a democratic race.
2: Strange enough, the DNC is not using that as a criteria <laughs> in the, yes, the well, debate stage. They
1: are using the criterion of polling and, uh, and, and the number of donors you had, which puts you at a disadvantage because you started the race late and you're living down there in the land of the one percenters. So- Where does that leave you?
2: Well, I need to be able to do better than being in the land of the one percenters to get to uh, to, to to be able to stay on the debate stage and prosecute my case. But I think that the race is heading in a direction where I'm gladder than I've been since I started that I'm in the race because I think that we can't allow ourselves to be dragged over the edge of this cliff by Bernie Sanders and Medicare for all. And that's not where the base of the Democratic Party is. I've been in South Carolina and, and, um, and in New Hampshire and in Iowa, and the Democrats there are like Democrats in Colorado, you know. They want universal health care, but they don't see any reason why we have to take it away from 180 million people in America who get it through their employer in order to have universal health care for this country. So I think there's the chance to prosecute that case now. And I I got in late because I had prostate cancer. I'm fine, totally fine. But it has meant that I've got to put one foot in front of the other a little more quickly.
1: Did that cancer make you more likely or less likely a lot of people would say you know what there's more to life than running for public so office
2: that so that was not my reaction which i have often said that um, a lot of the people i work with in washington are sociopaths and i've tried to distinguish myself from them um, you could take the view that my getting cancer discovering that i have it and then having that provoke me to want to run for president means that I have become one of those people. <laughs> An alternate view, and and it, and it is my view, is that it was just very clarifying. You know, it was clarifying in the sense that if this had been some stupid adolescent competition with my friend John Hickenlooper, that would have been resolved by the fact that I had cancer. If it had been um, just some whimsical act, that would have been resolved. And what I really felt was that Um, it's critically important for us to get to universal health care in this country. I mean, if I had not had a screening for for prostate cancer, I wouldn't know that I had it. And uh, I had no no signs of it at all. I'd be sitting here today talking to you, not knowing that I was sick, just because I live in the only industrialized country in the world that doesn't have universal health care coverage.
0: So, Senator, back to the politics of it all, because I, I look, I I hear your positions on some of these issues as a conservative, and I'm like, well, I get excited, but my wing of the Democratic primary, you can probably fit us into a small space, but but you're right that there is. There, there is out among real primary voters much more concern from a big chunk of them about some of these super progressive policies it strikes me that while you're one percent in the polls there are 30 35 percent of the voters that are looking for you the problem is how, how do you break through because you're, you're not going to have a pile of money the media is going to more or less ignore you till you move up in the polls but until you move up in the polls you know you need attention to do that is it the debate is it a tone how yeah. do you how do you break through because you know everybody's sitting. The New Hampshire circuit. That, that's not going to be enough.
2: I, I, I think the reality is uh, that the debates have become um, oversized in, the, in their influence and importance. But that's not a complaint. That's a reality. But I think you, you know, among anybody in this on this planet, should know that maybe there's an opportunity here for somebody who's willing to level with the American people the way John McCain did when he ran and. What, what was it? 2000. 2000 yeah. You know, yeah. yeah. I mean, he was given up for dead, and he was able to come back by making him, you know, by going out and telling the truth and saying where he stood on stuff and taking issues with, with other people in the party that he didn't agree with. I think there's an opportunity here to do that. I'm not saying I'm John McCain, although I do. Have a great appreciation for him. Her. Here's what
1: you got to do you got to get yourself a bus. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> got to call it the Straight, straight, talk, straight talk Express, express 2. <laughs> you got to build a big chair for yourself in the middle of it and gather the media around you if you could get them to
0: come. Isn't that how you do it, Murphy? Well, pretty much. It starts with that red vinyl chair, which we later gave McCain after the campaign. I'll even give you a, a, a pitch here for something, because I think you ought to be a candidate who takes a lot of chances. you got nowhere to go but up. I would reach into the, I know, strained campaign war chest you've got, and I'd start buying full-page uh, adds the New York Times with very provocative headlines. This is crazy. We're going to lose. And then Long Copy uh, burned through a couple hundred thousand doing that and doing it on digital to, to, to get a thing to break through. Because the little secret of the McCain campaign was New Hampshire fell in love with them for all the reasons uh, you were talking about, which is how we got into the race. But it was the media who put us in front of New Hampshire because we were different and McCain didn't seem to care about being cautious in the Republican primary. Uh, I think you ought to try that too in a big flashy way, because the problem with the debate is again you're going to be there with you know ten other people who are dying for oxygen. So that's part of it, but I, I think you need a big mm-hmm. move. We don't normally give free advice here, w- but I w- couldn't resist. So these debates, you talk about
1: how important they are. A bunch of you and you're right on the you're you're right on the cusp of this. A bunch of you won't be there in September. The rules change. 2% instead of 1%, 130,000 donors instead of 65,000 donors. It, it's it really feels like it's setting up the Hunger Games here uh, in these debates and that there's going to be a lot of uh, a lot of headhunting going on. I
2: think there's going to be a lot of headhunting going on. It plays into a um political um it it plays into a political spectacle that donald trump is really good at and that the rest of us are not as good at i i don't think anybody in america knows what the national democratic party stands for at this point i'm not even sure the democrats know what it stands for and well, the president
1: the, wants it to stand for uh, those
2: four young they, they, they women in w- They in the want house. it to stand, well, and open borders and taking away everybody's health insurance. I'm worried that the DNC's criteria, and I appreciate the fact that they have to come up with criteria, but I'm worried that their criteria don't necessarily um, suggest who's most likely to beat Donald Trump. I mean, in September, in the off year, are we really saying that people that came into the race, you know, may have lost a race before, came into the race at 11 and now we are at 2, really should be on the debate stage versus somebody who started 75 about days. About you, of, Beto Roy? Yeah, whether somebody who's, and I got nothing against Beto either. It's just a question of, you know, whether we actually want demonstrations of progress here. This whole issue of raising 130,000 contributions, I mean, it's turned these campaigns really into money laundering schemes. There was polling over the weekend from CBS... Uh, there were two
1: things that struck me. One was uh, reports from the uh, from the uh, FEC uh, that showed that you had th- 12 people on staff. Elizabeth Warren, 303, and obviously that can mean something or it can mean nothing. But I was there in Iowa in 2007, and we staffed up and we had a, a really really huge organization, and it, it was necessary to uh, to really compete in those caucuses. Uh,
2: how do you catch up uh, with that? I think it's a function of doing better in the polls and that's a function and then raising money and then being able to staff up. It's a challenge. I mean, I'm I'm not going to say it's not a challenge. The objective here, I knew this going in. I mean, the, the objective here is to figure out a way to get through the lean time. So there's something on the other side and it's not blowing up, you know, on the launching pad, because there aren't resources, so we have hired really leanly. I've spent a fair amount of time there, but I'm not unaware of the organizing effort that you guys made uh, the last. And that uh, someone like Warren is making now. And somebody like Warren is making now. And uh, you know, I also know that Barack Obama was something like thirty points behind Hillary Clinton in November nationally. Before, yeah, yeah, before the February, before the February caucus. So. I don't think we know. I mean, if po- if if history is a guide here, the people that are leading in the polls right now are not going to be the nominee of the Democratic Party.
1: Right now in the polling, and I don't want to be a complete Captain no. bring down here, but, right. but 4% say they're considering you. seems like to me, you, you need to use that debate to uh, open this thing up and get people to take another look and say, here's a guy I haven't heard of and um he's different and i'm and i ought to take a look at him
2: i agree i'm i'm taking that free advice too all right, okay, Murphy. We got to charge more. I'm telling yeah. you,
0: yeah. Maybe you ought to look into stamps.com. That would be, do us a favor there, um, <laughs> Senator. I uh,
2: you might want to find you might want to find people that are polling in double digits <laughs> uh, who can pay you. Well, well, well
0: my always joke is <laughs> they, they
2: don't need us, Senator. They don't need when us when
0: it's a victory to break through the margin of error and prove you statistically exist. It, it's an uphill campaign, but I'll tell you, the one thing that can beat organization is message. So that, that's mm-hmm. the path for somebody like you, which means uh, I would not be shy. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Well, I think that's good.
0: Thank you. <laughs> there you go. That's all the Democratic <laughs> on, work I can... I'm <laughs> sketching out
2: my... I'm sketching out the New York Times. <laughs> he, he, he's he's writing the ad yeah, down yeah. there
1: next to the thing yeah. saying, don't be shy. Right. So you're having an impact, Murphy. Is there anything that would cause you not to be in this race by the time the Iowa caucuses take place? If I thought I couldn't win.
2: Mm-hmm. And I suppose a lot of people are going to make those calculations. Everybody's going to have to make their own calculation. I would not have run if I didn't think there was a chance to win. And I think the reason why there is a chance to win is that most of this field has um, has gotten so distracted by the virtual base of the Democratic Party that exists on the Internet and on Twitter that they're ignoring the actual base of the Democratic Party. I mean, how do you find yourselves in a place where you've got climate proposals that the AFL-CIO have to go out of their way to oppose? How do you find yourself in a place where I sit with guys in unions in Iowa who love their health insurance and are Democrats and, and believe not that Donald Trump's trying to take their health care away from them, but that the Democratic Party is trying to take their health care away from them? That is ridiculous. It is ridiculous that we find ourselves in that position. And I don't want Donald Trump to have another term. So I'm going to try to do everything I can to make sure that doesn't happen. You can't just stamp your feet and hold your breath and hope that things are going to change. You have to go out and mobilize the American people around an agenda that unifies at least some of them around the notions that you're for. And that's hard work. That's different than just you know, shooting your mouth off on the cable when the people on the cable agree with everything that you say. It's about showing up in unexpected places and trying to make, g- give confidence to the American people that that it's worth trying again here. Look, I, you ask people in my state why they voted for Trump. They often say, because we wanted to blow the place up. And, and I say to them, well, congratulations, you succeeded. Now what are we going to do to govern the country? What are we going to do? To restore America's place in the world, our kids deserve that. You know, our parents and grandparents did that for us. We need to do it for them, and we're not going to do it with this kind of politics. We're, it's not Trump only. Trump is a symptom of our problems.
1: Senator, um, you said you enjoy. You're enjoying yourself out there, um, despite the obvious barriers. We, we look forward and more of that to you, and we look forward to seeing you uh, next week on that debate stage.
2: Thank you. I look forward. Don't blink.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for coming by. Thanks for having me. So, Mike, they're going to be batting around a lot of policy in these debates, but there's another kind of policy that's not nearly as much fun. You know, part of adulthood is having to do things you don't really want to do, like red-eye flights or working late, uh, visiting the in-laws. And among those is getting life insurance. But another part of adulthood... I've learned late in life is learning to delegate what you hate. And while you can't delegate a visit to the in-laws, you can definitely delegate life insurance shopping.
0: Well, you know, Axe, one insurance policy, you will never need is Segway insurance, because I thought that was a work of art. Policy Genius is the easy way to shop for life insurance online. In just two minutes, you can compare quotes from top insurers to find your best price. Once you apply, the Policy Genius team will handle all the paperwork and red tape. No sales pressure, no hidden fees, just financial protection and peace of mind. Policy Genius just doesn't make life insurance easy. They also help you find the right home insurance, auto insurance, and disability insurance.
1: So, If you need life insurance, but you just don't want to deal with all the legwork, head to policygenius.com. It's an easy way to compare all the top insurers and find the best value for you. Policy Genius. delegate what you hate, especially if you hate getting life insurance. So, Mike, let's dip into the virtual mailbag. I think that Michael Bennett answered Dan's question, but we got a bunch more. So why don't you read one and uh,
0: let's go from there. So here's a question from Elsa. She writes We were told that Brock's success in the election against Mitt Romney was due in part to defining him early through his 47% remark. The Republicans are busy now defining Democrats as socialists and undermining the positive connection people have to Medicare. Every time one of them speaks, they apply the socialist tag to Democrats Then all caps now, exclamation point. Other than two speeches by Bernie about what he thinks socialism is, I can think of nothing Democrats are doing to combat this. They, uh, Elsa wants to know, why aren't Democrats doing anything to define Trump and the Republicans now? And I get the feeling, David, this socialist thing is bugging her quite a bit. What do you say?
1: No, I agree. Uh, the first thing I want to tell Elsa is that forty-seven percent remark actually came late in the campaign. We had already uh, done a lot of work in defining Romney as a, a as a sort of candidate of the one percent, and uh, so when he made the forty-seven percent remark, it seemed to uh, it seemed to validate everything that we've been saying about him for months and months. And that's what a good campaign does is has a consistent message about itself, about its opponent, about where they want to lead the country. But on this question of socialism, if Democrats want to play on that field, I think they will lose. I don't think defining socialism uh, for the American people is the ticket that we need.
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. You don't want to debate socialism. It's a sticky moniker, particularly when there are people in the Democratic caucus who are running around with a lot of Che Guevara shirts making that kind of argument and being lionized. It's just too easy a target for the Republicans. This election is either going to be about firing Trump or Trump's going to make it about something else. And the Democrats, at least so far, are giving him a lot of tools to work with.
1: My, my, I, I feel uh, moved to make the point that it is a bunch of crap. I mean, the fact of the matter is, other than on health care, they're not talking about nationalizing industries or, uh, uh, or anything like that. But it is a handy, mon- handy uh, kind of tagline for Republicans, and you can see in polling that it is a damaging one. Listen, Donald Trump uh, is the best argument against Donald Trump. He's exhausting. He's exhausting. And what Democrats need to present is the image of, uh, of a presidency that would uh, refocus on the actual problems in people's lives and not on the fight and contretemps and, and stupid sideshows of the day. And I think if they do that, uh, they, will, they will win the election. Okay, we got an email from a guy named Chris who asked a super smart question. And uh, this is what he wrote. The electoral college isn't going anywhere, and so it seems to me that national polling may not be a good indicator for Trump's reelectability or lack thereof. Chris goes on to note that we're so polarized by geography that these can run up big numbers on the coasts and in democratic deep blue states, as just, and lose just as Hillary did. All this is to say... In 2020, back to his writing, I could foresee Democrats significantly expanding upon their popular vote victories of 2016 and 18 while still losing the election. Uh, So, And and he uh, closes by saying, it seems to me that in the hypothetical event Biden and Warren are tied to national polling against Trump, it doesn't mean that they have an equal chance of beating Trump uh, because those national polls don't reflect the nuances of the electoral college system. He's absolutely write about this. Nate Cohn in the New York Times wrote a really smart analysis yep. uh, this weekend about how Democrats could actually expand their uh, their margins in the popular vote and still lose in the electoral bo- vote because of the way demographics are sorting out in the country.
0: No, totally correct. It's one of these things that, that is, as America has become more polarized, has changed. Hillary got the bulk of her votes out of 163 counties, and there are more than 3,200 counties in the U.S. Right now, the system, because of the College of Electricians, as he notes, it prizes distribution of vote. So, yeah, you can run up San Francisco another two points, but you don't move the needle. And the lesson for the Democrats here, which is so hard during the passions of a primary where there are more center-left voters participating is you've got to be good at getting votes you're not comfortable with. You've got to go trim Trump in the Pasco County, Florida, as in the Macomb County, Michigan's, uh, And, you know, so far they've been preaching to the choir they already have, which is not a way to move the distribution of the vote to something that'll trigger the Electoral College. Now, the good news, it was very close in those those big swing states in the Great Lakes, so it's doable, but it will require a strategic discipline.
1: The case that Cohn makes, I think, pretty persuasively is that in these battleground states, you still need to make some inroads, and in that if all... Uh, with, with In some of these small towns and rural areas, if all you do is pump up turnout, that Trump could still end up a winner even as the margin for the Democrat nationally uh, expands. So that's uh, I think there's a real cautionary note there, and kudos to Chris uh, for a really good question. And if you have questions, please send them to us. We'd love to get them at hacksontap at gmail.com. That's hacksontap at gmail.com. Dot .com. All right, here's my last call, Murphy. I saw uh Liz Cheney uh defending the president on Face the Nation, very very tough, you know, as you'd expect, uh insisting that all this talk about race was the function of the news media and that the president never made his remarks about those four uh never meant them to be racial and that he he's talking about the economy every day and it's the media that won't cover it. So, uh, I looked back at the last 100 tweets uh, on Sunday. I looked back at the last 100 tweets that he had made. I think a third of them were about those four women. Uh, I think uh, less than 20, probably closer to 10, uh, were about the economy. He's not talking about the economy. That's not what he's talking about. I think that's what she wishes he was talking about. That's what Republicans on the Hill wish he was talking about. He was talking about race. He thinks race is a winning card in this election.
0: Yeah, I would just say if you don't want press coverage about race, don't be a racist. That's a little free advice to the president from me. So my last call and a half tip to mailbag uh, email sender Martin is about the vice presidency. I have a crazy prediction to make. Won't be the first one. But if you want to understand Donald Trump, think like a reality show producer. And when January and February rolls around and the media 24-7 is screaming about all the excitement and the winners and losers in the Democratic presidential contest, he's not going to like all that attention going to the other side. He's going to have to bust a big season-ender to his reality show. And I think it's going to be the hunt for a new vice president. I think Mike Pence hasn't been, quote unquote, from Trump's point of view, loyal enough, which is code for 24-7 yes man, believe it or not. So I think Trump with his 1958 Queens mentality is going to start thinking, I need a lady. I keep reading, I'm not getting the women's vote. So he will orchestrate and the media will fall for it, hook, line and sinker, a big goodbye Pence. Who will the new person be? And of course, it'll eventually be Nikki Haley. Might be the worst thing to ever happen to her political career, unless the Democrats keep handing Trump easy softballs. But stay tuned for that reality show coming soon to the first quarter of 2020.
1: This is on tape. You know, People can go back and listen to it. I just want to remind you of that. Well, one guy who never disappoints Murphy is you. And I hope that uh, folks will come back next week uh, after the debates uh, when we meet again uh, to talk about the aftermath.
0: Well, thank you, David. I'm having a tremendous time doing this. I've enjoyed talking politics with you for almost 30 years, and I'm glad we're able to share it here from the virtual bar stools of the podcasting universe. Now, listeners, there is one thing you can do to help us if you are so inclined. We're very grateful that you give us some of your valuable time to listen. If you can go on the podcasting platform of your choice, be it iTunes or Stitcher, Spotify, wherever, and give us a rating, it's not just because we're egomaniacs and we like to read the, the good reviews. The reason that those reviews help us so much is they tell the computers at Apple and other places to share the podcast with more people who haven't heard of it. Helps our listenership grow, helps us get the word out. So if you want to share this with people, please give us a rating, whether you like it or not, any rating is good, and uh, you help us grow and reach more ears. So thank you for that. And happy Hunger Games. (laughs) To you too, pal. See you next week.
2: Happy Hunger Games. And may the odds be ever in your favor.